Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is The Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. Today's Modern Architect radio show is dedicated to Bill Worthen, who died unexpectedly on January 28th of this year. Bill was a talented and truly remarkable person, a fine architect and a highly influential thought leader in sustainability and green design, and of course, the founding principal of Urban Fabric. Our guest today is Kyle Pickett, managing partner. Kyle, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Tom. Kyle, how take us back to the the starting of Urban Fabric. We can go a little back before there, but share with us, you know, how you know how it came about. What were some of the challenges, some of the 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 the, the fears, the thoughts, the joys of, of founding Urban Fabric? In two thousand five is when Urban Fabric started as a sole proprietorship. Bill Worthen had uh, left traditional architecture practice and started working for Lynn Simon. And he was just not sure if this sustainability thing was actually going to pan out. So he founded Urban Fabric as a design practice to keep on the side as he figured out what sustainability meant within the built environment. Yeah, I'm curious. He thought sustainability might not pan out or not work out. That's just, it's so it just ought to be standard. But I'm curious what what made him be concerned that it maybe it may not work out. Yeah. So back in 2005, LEED was pretty much in its infancy, and the whole notion of sustainability was still very very new to the marketplace. I mean, everything was design build, how you can do it cheap, dirty, and quick. And um, sustainability actually turned things on its head and looked at the design process from a different angle. And uh, there just wasn't that certainty at the time if sustainability would actually move forward in the marketplace. Yeah, so there was concern. So before Bill did that, were there ever discussions as to the opportunity of sustainability or being a part of that even before, several years before Urban Fabric? (laughs) That's a really good question. That's actually before when Bill and I actually met. When we did meet and I was at the 555 Mission Lead Gold dedication. It's the first tower in San Francisco to receive Lead Gold. Yeah, Yeah, and Mayor Gavin Newsom was there. A whole bunch of city dignitaries were there as well. 
And uh, I remember leaning over to Lynn Simon saying, well, what is it that you guys do again? <laughs> and so sustainability, the whole concept of sustainability and stewardship for the built environment was a completely new concept for me. Yeah. So being a new, new to you, what are your thoughts of it beginning? You know, what, what were your ideas, you know, how your contribution to it to say, yeah, I see this as well. What, what, how did you feel about it? Yeah, yeah. so I, I grew up in a, in a Christian home, mm-hmm. and the whole concept of stewardship was ingrained into my own upbringing, you know, taking care of our natural resources. And so the whole concept of a LEED certification or third-party certification of sustainable measures for the built environment really resonated with me, and I wanted to learn more. Uh-huh. Now, it, it, growing up, it sounds like sustainability, in essence, was a part of your life. It wasn't a, 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 there wasn't a, a word to describe it. It just was a way of being. It was stewardship. Okay. I like that. Stewardship. So, so how do you, how do you see it, you know, in the future? I know we're reaching a little bit, but how do you see it in the future now that it's becoming more, I don't like to say mainstream, but you know, it's more becoming more, more known. The focus of LEED has been so much on individual buildings. Okay. Recently, there's uh, LEED ND, which is the neighborhood development. And what we're looking at now is going beyond just the building scale to the district scale. How can you centralize wastewater systems, energy capturing, uh, heat transfer? I mean, all of these different things that we talk about for a sustainable building, but we're pushing the envelope a little further and looking at it from a district scale to see how buildings within an area can actually share resources and also be able to conserve resources. Yeah. How was Bill's background from your your, your experience that, that brought him to this? You know, go back as far yeah. as you want to what, any, any of the stories <laughs> he may have told you when he was a kid. Uh, how, how, do you, how, how do you know he's... Legos, from? Tom. Oh, was it really? Legos. Really? Did it start with Legos it as a kid? It really did. Okay. Yeah. Share yeah. with me if you've got a, a story or two. That, yeah, yeah. No. Um, one of the earlier pictures when we first got together that I saw was him as a young kid, uh-huh. five, six seven years old playing with Legos. And Legos was a different was definitely a thing for him. It allowed him to build things and visualize things that when he did enter architecture school at Rensselaer Polytech, it, it was just this natural progression of who he was. Yeah, that was definitely the earlier. How did he how, how was it, Bill's experience in, in the architecture school from what he told you? Did he he'd share with you any Okay, so any any funny stories or, or, or stories that led him to go, wow, I kind of see the vision of what I want to do kind of with my occupational life, at least. Well, th- there is definitely a funny story. I'm not sure how related it is to the question, but okay. I, I'm willing to share the funny story. Excellent. Thank um, you. So he had an opportunity to design his fraternity house. No way. Yeah. So this was in his final year of school. And one of the things that he learned out of the the entire process was that sometimes it's really hard to design a building on campus when you're a student and you have architecture professors that may not be so happy. It's the student that's designing the building. So I think that's probably one of the earlier forays into the politics of the design process that he learned early on before he got hired into HOK. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, so so how did that go about? Did did the story, did he he design it? uh... Well, he designed it. It was built. And since its passing, uh, a lot of the fraternity brothers actually bounded together. And now there is a scholarship fund in his name at, at Rensselaer specific to that fraternity house. Oh, it's really, really cool. 
Beyond cool. Yeah. That is really beyond cool. So after he, he went out of school, you know, he went with, you said HOK? H- yeah. H- okay. HOK. Yeah. Uh, is that immediately after school? Yeah, or, immediately yeah. after school. He went to HOK in Washington, D.C., was dirt doing these down and dirty design builds um, on the Dallas Parkway and um, these office buildings that were all fluorescence, uh, completely <laughs> sealed units, no real attention to individual health inside the building or anything. It was just down and dirty, get it done. And he had an opportunity to do some work in San Francisco where he came out here. And then the nuance of the transfer eludes me, but he came out to the HLK office here in San Francisco, and that's where he really started his practice. Yeah. What was the response? Did he ever share with you his response coming from East Coast to West Coast? Is it the, was it his first time or, or had he been here before? Oh, he's you know? visited here before. Okay. So he was familiar with the Bay Area. Okay. Just really enjoyed being here. Yeah. And um, really took to San Francisco with gusto. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he he he, he loved this city. And he left. How, how long was did he work with the National AIA? Are you, you know how long? Yeah, okay. yeah. So he was with HOK for a period of time, and then I went to Hornberger Rostell, which is another you know firm in San Francisco, and then somewhere in between, he met Lynn Simon, who was among the first five employees of the United States Green Building Council. So this was really when lead and sustainable conversations for the built environment were really in its infancy. And he started working for Lynn Simon part-time doing these lead projects. And it really, and that's when Urban Fabric was formed because he wasn't sure if if this sustainability was actually going to be the thing. Clark Manis, who I think was also a guest on your show, um, was uh, serving as AIA national president. And uh, that group tapped him, tapped Bill Worthen to be the National Director Resource Architect for Sustainability, which was a new role that yeah. AIA created. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to touch on that. The, the topic that you said where uh, Bill wasn't sure if it was going to take off. It reminds yeah. me of something. It will segue. It's, it's definitely off of architecture, but there's relevancy in that you're not sure with it. Is I don't know if you've been to the Universal Studios down in Southern California. I haven't. Okay, at the end of the sh- uh, at the end of the tour. I, I don't know if they still do this. They had it several years ago. There's a you, you, there's a chicken coop. There's a fruit stand. There's where are you going with this? Tom? Okay, hey, here is. He's got the chickens. He's got the farm animals. This and you're, you're like, what? After, after all this, all this, you know, these movies. What is this? And the, the the tour guide stops stops the trolley and says, "You guys all m- might be wondering what this is. You know, you see." It looks like a, a stand of, you know, vegetables and fruits and chickens and what, what, <laughs> eggs and what, what's this? After all this, and he said, the founder of Universal Studios, when he, he did it, said at the end of hit that tour, he would sell eggs and fruit and vegetables oh. to the to the patrons. And he <laughs> said, and, and when they asked him, why would you do that? And he said, well, you never know how long this Hollywood fad will last. <laughs> so that's De- where I see the relevance. Definite parallel. Yes. Definite parallel. How you see that I, it looks like. And this may just kind of be a passing thing, but yeah. it's like no, it becomes it becomes standard. So share with me some of his. You know, it's not always great. You know, some of some of what his fears may have been with it about sustainability and the importance of it. What were some of his uh, you yeah. know challenges or fears that you know of? I think because it was such a new conversation and so different from business as usual that the uncertainty was actually 
wider than just his own. It was throughout, really, the built environment and those who were working in, you know, architecture or construction or engineering. Mm -hmm. You know, what does sustainability really mean in the built environment or in designing? And the perception was, is you're making my job harder because it's it's going from the the status quo of design build to actually looking beyond that a little bit further and thinking what kind of glass are we using? What kind of glazing are we using? Um, how is the HVAC system sized? Is the design of the building going to be healthy for people? What you know? So it's all of these standard questions that come in with mm-hmm. LEED or other third-party rating systems that are starting to gain traction now. And so and I think for Bill, it was one of those things that it was so new that he just wanted to have a backup plan. And the backup plan was to keep Urban Fabric as a sole proprietorship in the way that he formed it in 2005, right after his his dad's passing, and wanted to keep that going. But as the city of San Francisco started instituting their own sustainability measures within the building code, things really started picking up. And um, it really became a thing, and he was very, very passionate to have that discussion. Yeah. How did the name Urban Fabric come about? I mean, yeah. I can, I can put it together, you know, but how did it come about? So Urban Fabric, urban spelled just the way you think mm-hmm. it is, Fabric, F-A-B-R-I-C-K. Mm-hmm. So our logo, when you look at it, it looks like a red brick. And so the brick is the fundamental building block of civilization, and the urban environment is the grid that connects us all. So it's this urban fabric that connects all of us as not only human beings, but also residents of the city and fully integrated into the urban environment. Yeah, so that's how that came about. That's great. You know, and I'm looking at the logo uh, as we speak, and I can see that, you know, I didn't mention, and I'm going to do so now, the website for our, our audience and listeners that you can go to. It's www.urbanfabric, and it's spelled F-A-B-R-I-C-K, as Kyle said, dot com. Again, that's urban, F-A-B-R-I-C-K dot com. So you, you found the, the, the urban fabric there. How have you seen, say, in the last two years, the importance of that collaboration that you've done at mm-hmm. Urban Fabric in, in not just San Francisco, but at other cities in California? I think by taking a, a quick step back, back and recognizing that during Bill's time at AI National, he saw that he was exposed to metrics at AI National that indicated that 80% of the membership are small and mid-sized firms. So how do small and mid-sized firms stay competitive in the marketplace? How do they stay up to date in professional education, some of the new cutting edge thinking that's coming behind not only sustainability, but also the design? Mm -hmm. But what we realized when when we came when he came back left that role came back to San Francisco and we formed Urban Fabric Inc as a S corp we recognized that collaboration is really key to any sort of relationship whether it's an internal or external and that the relationship with the client is really really important and building that trust with the client we are here to help is one of the most important things yeah let's touch back on that yeah. you're listening to the modern architect KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent is an impartial, neutral, and independent humanitarian organization. It protects the lives and dignity of victims of war and internal violence and coordinates international relief activities. The ICRC also seeks to prevent suffering by promoting and strengthening humanitarian laws and principles. 
For more information or to donate, visit icrc.org. That's icrc.org. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Kyle Pickett, Bill Worthen's husband and managing principal of Urban Fabric, a sustainability and collaborative design company. For more information, please visit www.urbanfabric.com. That's urbanfabric with a F-A-B-R-I-C-K dot com. Kyle, you were talking about before the uh, how you put metrics together. How, how is there a, a, pro- a formal process to put the metrics together for, you know, measuring sustainability? So the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> and pretty much all of the third-party rating systems, whether you're looking at LEED or whether you're looking at Well or FitWell or or any of these others, Cal Green is you know our our kind of our. our state in-house sustainability rating. And every single one of those looks at important elements within the design process, whether it's a water credit, site credits. It goes down the line as to what a developer or what a builder or an architect can take a look at and be informed in their design process. And that's what Urban Fabric really does, is we are the sustainability consultant for a number of different projects ranging from Terminal 1C at at San Francisco Airport, 181 Fremont, an 800-foot tower in San Francisco, to VA hospitals, to wineries. We we pretty much cover it all. And working directly with our clients and our and the developers, you know, to help them achieve not only the code mandated sustainable goals, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, if there's interest, you know, to push the envelope further, there might be an enlightened client that actually wants to go much further and go like to the, like net zero. An enlightened client. Okay. <laughs> they exist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have the enlightened client. Yeah, that terminal one in particular mm-hmm. in San Francisco, I've literally seen people just stop, stare, and just like they look like they're lost, but they're really not lost. What is it about that terminal that you guys help and collaborate with Gensler, I believe? Is it? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, so right now, Terminal One is down to the ground. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but but you know, it, it, yeah. some of the other terminals that you, you did play, they're like they're stunning. Yeah. So when Bill was with uh, Simon Associates, Terminal Two is actually two. the big one where it really pushed the sustainable measures to a new level that you wouldn't necessarily see in in airport design. And so as a result of the successes that they see in Terminal 2, SFO has taken a really big approach into the the development of Terminal 1 Center, T3 West, um, International Terminal Building, some of these other projects that are coming online in the next you know five years or so, and really wants to make San Francisco Airport a destination for people that want to look at building their own with the same kind of sustainability metrics that have been instituted into this design process. Yeah. It's really, really exciting to be a part of that process. Yeah. How early do do firms or t- companies or cities bring urban fabric into into their projects? Well, we, we definitely encourage our clients and developers to bring us in as early as possible. If we can go with something not so much on the traditional design build side, but bring us in with an integrated project delivery kind of mindset where we all get together talk about what the goals are, talk about what the design is. The design may not be fully flushed out, but we can help them guide that process, not only to make it you know, easier down the road, but then also if they're holding on to the building for a longer term as part of their portfolio, there is a definitive measurable ROI that actually comes from hmm. um, instituting sustainable measures. 
Really? Yeah. Oh, good. So how, how I, I, you, you, we talked a little bit earlier, a couple of times about the personal dynamics of you and Bill starting uh, hmm. Urban Fabric together. How, was there like a conversation about it? Did, was there a defining moment, hey, we're going to go ahead with this? Or no, it was kind of a gradual yeah, I thought he was crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, really, like, something's, uh, are, you, are you nuts? Type? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because we were also married. Okay. Um, and our, our, our approaches to, to getting things done and, and um, to many things are just so vastly different that I was not entirely convinced that it would be conducive to our relationship, let alone be in the best interest of the business that we're trying to build together. But it really ended up in a really cool way because he was the bright light, kind of shiny, shiny things, luminary that would come up with the crazy ideas. And then with my organizational development background, really taking a look at what he's come up with and saying, okay, well, what are the pathways that we can um, institute in order to get there? Yeah. And that's, you know, how we've how we scaled from at the beginning of the company from just the two of us to a team of 12 people now in two offices um, on both coasts. Wow. So that's what crazy looks like now. That is what crazy looks like. (laughs) And crazy, actually, crazy has been proven to be vital. Yeah. Isn't that something? Uh, yeah. Am, I, am, I, am I stretching a little bit or no? No, I, th- I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, we can walk into project meetings and, the you know, the whole idea of sustainability is looked at as crazy because it may, you know, the, the view is it may disrupt the design process or we're not really there to shake things up. We're really there to be partners in the endeavor and and really want to engage with our clients and, and with uh, the developers who bring us on not only to show that uh, building Building to code is important, but also pushing that envelope a little bit further. And you might end up um, with a really strong marketing message, like we actually see with the 181 Fremont Tower and the institute, institution of a of a membrane bioreactor gray water reuse system. I love that. Say that again. I love that. Membrane bioreactor gray water reuse system. <laughs> That's outstanding. <laughs> that sounds... It was, we talked about the impact yeah. of it. How many gallons of... Yeah. Is it, I mean, so, that's just... so the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission yeah. has put out a, a calculator that would actually allow people to, you know, calculate what the water savings would be and, and could certainly point you to that, you know, that direction. But I think a ser- simple web search would actually pull it up. But for this 800-foot tower, which is mixed use, two-thirds commercial, one-third high-end luxury residential, it's a J. Paul Company project, they are projected to save 1.3 million gallons of potable water a year and potable is drinking water oh yeah oh that's one building that is one building so has anyone ever taken a real a, a real stretch and say let's say let's say buildings of this size and if we did the the uh, mathematics to it you're talking of trillions of gallons, correct? Yeah. Just in one city? Yeah. So am I, am I? you you are not off base. Okay. Definitely oh, not off base. That's huge. You're talking rivers and you're talking yeah. whole lakes. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, the state of California where we are you know, still reeling from, you know, the length of the drought period that we had, what we're looking at is really matching up non-potable supply with non-potable uses. So okay. essentially with the gray water system that has been processed, we can pump that water back up into the building and use it for irrigation, cooling tower makeup, and right. also um, right. uh, flushing of toilets. Wow. 
So th- that building, has it brought to you, not that you're looking for it, you've won a number of awards. That's got to be something that everyone's taken a look. Not a t- you can't just take a look at that. I know I'm putting a strong opinion out of it. It's something that I feel you got to do. Well, and, and I think there's a responsibility there. I mean, um, the city and county of San Francisco is pretty enlightened when it comes to the concept of water reuse. There's an enlightened uh, again. Yeah, and, and it's also <laughs> beneficial that the city and the county is the same entity. Mm, when you're dealing mm. with a county that has multiple municipalities that have different roles, it's a little bit harder to kind of herd the cats in a direction that is mutually beneficial to us all. <laughs> but the PUC actually had put out a grant that if a project were to de- pursue a gray water reuse system or a black water system, there was money available that could help offset the cost of incorporating that system into their project. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah there's a number of... Uh, talk That's about- going away now because it's code. So really? we, Urban Fabric was part and Bill was integral to this um, when Supervisor Scott Weiner was still part of the city's supervisor board. We helped write a gray water reuse um, legislation for the city and county that mandated any new construction over 250,000 gross square foot must incorporate some sort of on-site water reuse system into the project. Oh, so that's an edict now. It is. It oh, is nice, and so you Bill must was. Do. <laughs> so Bill was the the um, the force behind. That. Bill was definitely a driving force, you know, yeah. in that project. Um, he and Scott Weiner actually go way back uh, as friends. So for them then to get together, you know, later on in their professional life um, to help craft something that is um, meaningful legislation. Sometimes people are not, you know, crazy about it because it may, you know, it does complicate the design process. But that's why organizations like us are actually there is to kind of help them along and guide them. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Bill as a kind of a force of nature. Is, oh. is that accurate? You, you or, have you met him before? Yeah, I'm just talking, but yeah, it really. I mean, because these things just don't happen with someone yeah. who's interested or curious or even passionate. You have to go beyond that. Yeah, for these type of uh, initiatives, not even they're beyond initiatives, but even, at, least, at least initially they are initiatives to get them to actually get traction and then to, like you said, the, it, it, be an edict. That yeah. takes. A, that's a whole force. That's not a just a person. Well, and that really started with Senator Weiner wanting to make um, those kind of changes, you know, within the city and county's, you know, legislative body. But then when Bill got wind of that, and Bill being the man that he was, very gregarious, very engaging, wanted to help, that just kind of came through. But he also had a very special gift of being able to pivot the problem on its head and take a look at something and say, you know what, let's approach it from this angle. And more often, than not, that was the answer in, in, in engaging with a stakeholder or with any other client that he had actually worked with, you know, to really sign on and get behind it. But, you know, part of it, you know, is developing trust and, and developing a relationship. And that's where we, um, I feel kind of we stand out is that we really want to be a partner in the process and really engage with the client teams. And we get together for happy hours and we do professional learning education uh, together. It, it really is a way not only to bring our own internal team together, but then also show that we're here to help even with competition. Yeah. Now, that 
is that prevalent among your whole organization? It sounds like a culture. It is a culture that we've worked hard to cultivate. Um, <laughs> I like that. Culture cul- cultivation. Uh, <laughs> Kyle, coming up with those quick quips. <laughs> I'm not trying. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't have done. Uh, yeah. Did it. Yeah. We just feel it's really, really important that when we look at bringing people into our team, not only does it you know fit the needs of the business, but also there is a the personality and the spark within them that allows them to become luminaries themselves with proper mentorship, with engagement, allowing them to do the things that they also want to do and volunteer activities and others. It's really, really important to us as a firm that our people remain happy, but then also being able to be out and speaking themselves, be part of um, panels. It's just really, really exciting to watch our team, you know, blossom yeah. uh, into the into this into these um, more advanced roles. Yeah. Do you seek them out or they kind of seek you out or a little bit of both? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. And sometimes it's just luck. Interesting. Or fate. Um, there's there. Uh, one of our first employees actually was into do some photographs into the co-working space that we're that we're involved in, and it come to find out he's an architect and has a really strong you know technology background. And we actually hired him uh, within a week or two after that, and he is now really the point person on a lot of our SFO projects right now around low carbon life cycle um, assessments, and then also is kind of our in-house lead before expert. Yeah, for, and that the SFO project, how long is yeah. uh, how ongoing is that expected to be? Yeah, so Five, ten years, we're or? on six projects okay. for San Francisco Airport. There's a couple more coming online, but San Francisco Airport has some really audacious goals. They call them big, hairy, audacious goals. It's their BHAGs. Literally. Yeah, literally. Oh, okay. And it's just really, really exciting to, you know, to be a partner not only with the individual project teams, but then also with SFO themselves to, you know, make the building more sustainable, you know, there's composting and make it actually visible, you know, to the people that are, you know, traveling through the airport because it's, it is such an important message and it can be done at bigger scales like SFO. Yeah. You mentioned that it was, they were looking at becoming a destination, not just a, Mm -hmm. it's an airport. Obviously it, it, it is a destination, but actually becoming more interactive. I don't know if that's. Yeah. Yeah. So Anthony Bernheim, who is the SFO Program Sustainability Manager for Terminal 1, Aaron Cook, and a few others in SFO, uh, you know, really want to make it a place for people to learn and to show that, you know, low-carbon buildings, um, low-carbon footprints, water reuse technologies, PV, all of these things really do work, and they actually are a benefit to a project, and SFO is is looking to prove that. Yeah, so I can't, yeah, how many how many people go through SFO? Do you, do you know any numbers? I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I do go through there pretty regularly, and <laughs> just given the security line, there's a lot of people. <laughs> and with, with time to look and learn. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, I'm also thinking that it, it also is an attempt, not an attempt, but it shows a, a, a bit of the, the area's culture and mm-hmm. the mindset. Mm-hmm. And you, you're obviously fostering that. We'll come back to that. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. This is the Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford ninety point one FM. Missy is an Oakland-based charity that supports youths who have been sexually exploited for commercial gain. Many of these children are under eighteen who have been the victims of human trafficking or sexual servitude. Missy provides a range of services, from direct help to working with social agencies and law enforcement. 
Missy always needs more volunteers and financial contributions are always appreciated. For more information, visit M-I-S-S-S-E-Y.org. That's M-I-S-S-S-E-Y.org. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Kyle Pickett, Managing Director of Urban Fabric, now the William J. Worthen Foundation. For more information, please visit www.urbanfabric.com. That's www.urbanfabric.com. We're talking about uh, SFO and people having time to actually learn, and it actually is an, an, an extension of the culture of the area. And and I can't help but the. There's got people from all over the world seeing that, and when they're going to see those kind of numbers, and it sounds like you're educating them in all different ways, how it's going to sh- change the world. What yeah. do you? Am, am, am I being too woo woo with that, or no? It, it, because <laughs> uh, w- w- what's your thought on that? Well, I I think that is part of the fundamental goal for for SFO is to really make it make the terminals, the buildings, a very interactive experience to be able to show that sustainable measures, even at the scale of a large airport, can be measurable. It can be uh, useful and also part of, you know, the the human health experience. You know, daylighting is really important to people's moods. I mean, we're seeing that a lot of the things within sustainability better are way of living. It also betters our productivity. There's a lot of really, really great lessons that come out of building a better building. Building Uh, a better building. Building a better building. Nice. So that's... There's so many facets I noticed to urban fabric. There really are. No pun intended. There's, (laughs) There's a lot of facets to it. Where do you like begin when you when you work with someone initially? Where do you kind of what, what would you say to them, or how do you get your message to them? Like, here's what we can do with you, not for you, but here's mm-hmm. what you can do with you, and then here's what we can do with for you. How do you kind of approach it? Yeah. If there's if there's a set way, there really isn't a set yeah. way, and each each project is unique. Lead projects are the bread and butter of what we do. It is, uh, you know, a fundamental element of how the company was founded. Um, but what we're looking to do is going beyond lead and looking at things where climate action plans, master site planning, all of the things that really make a difference in the greater, broader context of sustainability and. On that, you know, the each client may have their own objectives. And if it's a client that's looking to flip a building almost immediately after it's built, they're not going to necessarily be very interested in pushing the envelope in sustainability. They will build to code because then they want to actually flip it. But we're what we're showing in in clients that retain the project as part of their portfolio. There is measurable ROI in the long-term operations and maintenance of buildings that go beyond code, that really push the envelope, that really incorporate high-level sustainable measures in their buildings, and their tenants are happier. The The long-term rentability and the long-term ROI, really, of being able to put tenants into these buildings are actually magnified, and that's what is being shown in some of these um, some of these projects that we're working on working on. Yeah, you, you got me thinking here, especially a developer, the perception is typically they're obviously looking to, to, to make money on every, any and every project. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, what percentage do you think are those who are really in for it for the long haul and those who are just kind of ready to, you know, as soon as they can, someone's going to buy it, they'll, they'll sell it? Is there, is, have you ever quantified that sort of... Uh, I think that's really difficult to quantify because of the range of the projects that we work on. And, you know, a number of them are, are private projects, but then also, you know, there are projects with SFO. We are the city and county's green building advisor for the next five years in a joint venture with another company called Atelier 10. So we're helping shape the policy of the city and county of San Francisco in green building um, measures. And then there's also the, you know, there are those projects, maybe a multifamily building unit. They just want to build it. They want to build it cheaply and then they want to flip it. And there isn't really much that you can do in that conversation, but building trust within the project team to show that we are not, we are there to make their building better not make the life harder in the design process. Yeah. Having the measurement for ROI, I think that helps everybody. Does it not? Yeah, definitely. So so you're able to quantify your processes, and I like what you said, you're helping, you help shape policy to measure the ROI. Is that something you lead with in developing the relationship with the people or uh, something that kind of comes a little later. Well, it, it kind of depends on if we have a relationship with that client already. If we have an existing relationship with them or we've worked on projects together in the past, it makes the process a lot easier. Um, we've built trust within you know that relationship and they are bringing us in because they want us to be there. If it's a new client, we just kind of feel it out. We're, we're not really you know the, the prime in that process, but we do try to be there and be helpful and help drive the process in such a way that, you know, not only hit sustainable code or the sustainable measures within code, but then also maybe push the envelope a little further, push the client just a little bit further and show that there is measurable benefit to building a a more sustainable structure. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the um, water reuse practice guide. I've got here the uh, postcard and some of your uh, collateral. It's outstanding because you make something, at least I feel, you make something that's actually would be kind of difficult. You make it simple. Yeah. So I think yeah. the story how we got here is actually really important to to talk about as well. Yeah. When Bill got back from national uh, as the national director resource architect for sustainability at AIA, and recognizing that the vast majority of the the membership firms, you know, don't have real clear mechanisms to improve their you know their own in house knowledge, uh, what we did is we formed a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization where we can flip the insights that we're doing and the cutting edge elements of urban fabric ink into free professional education for mm. the greater community. And so what you were talking about there, the Design Professionals Guide to On-Site Water Use and Reuse uh, has been funded by the Pancal Foundation, Google, Magnuson Clementic, AIA California Council, City of Santa Monica, and, and a few others, and have a really, really great working group of top-notch people that really care about the conversation, not only with AIA, but, you know, uh, Kathleen Smith from International Living Futures is on our group, Joel Caesar from the city of Santa Monica, and a a number of others that are really lending their insights to create a really robust guide that can 
any layman can pick up and take the highly technical information that is part of an on-site water reuse process that distills it down to easily digestible distilled tub, water distilled <laughs> distilled water Tom, you're killing me <laughs> <laughs> please carry on <laughs> um, but it really is really important to us to to have a very visual document so an architect an engineer a contractor a wastewater technician someone from the department of public health someone within policy and city government can pick up this guide and actually better become or become more informed um, about what it means to incorporate um, a water reuse system into their project. And even if it's viable. Yeah. Because it may not be viable. How could it not be viable? Yeah. So what we're talking about when, so what this guide really covers are larger buildings. Um, so like multifamily units, where we see it really penciling out is when you have either district scale system that combines, you know, individual small housing together or in larger buildings where uh, then you have the flows that you need for the technology to be able to process that water appropriately. Okay. Um, because you definitely need that flow to continue so that you have a system that continues to be viable. Yeah, I'm just thinking at least in a commercial in the in a commercial sector how could it, it not be required on every building? Or just just really I mean, not not just from a policy standpoint just from a just a practicality. Well, it really comes down to people's perceptions. Okay. Um there's this okay, you nasty can't little phrase of toilet to tap, <laughs> no. which does not sound very nice. And that's where people get hung up. It's this, um, and what we're trying to do is have the conversation where it goes from yuck to yay. People become better informed that there is, you know, it's a proven technology. A lot of these technologies have been in existence in Australia and in Israel. In fact, one Blythe Street in Sydney, Australia is a, is a big tower. The prime minister has offices there, and they have a sewer mining project where they actually bring in sewer from the main, treat it there on site, and then pump the recycled, reclaimed water back up into the building and other buildings around for toilet flushing and other non-potable needs. And that's all underneath the prime minister of Australia. Uh, it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's got... it, it works. You know, the systems work. We're just not used to it because we have an expectation that when we turn on the tap, the water will be there. Okay. So uh, can you also bring it into existing? Obviously, you can do it, but I just don't know. Uh, let's take it to a home, mm. a home or a, let's say a multifamily yeah. uh, uh, residences. Can you incorporate these uh, these processes in, with existing old older dwellings? The short answer is yes. In my opinion, the technology just really isn't there to make it viable for single-family dwellings. Okay. Um, there are some really promising technologies that are on the market. How about here, Stanford? Yeah, you know, there are universities. Okay. Um, one of them we are working with about, uh, you know, a, a master site planning project. You know, what can you do as far as a district-scale system where you'd have multiple buildings in play and that a water reuse system would be at the center of that, of that system? Okay. So... Yeah, I, know, I noticed here. There's a lot of you mentioned as well, and I'm, I'm seeing a lot of sponsors on this. When they mm -hmm. when, when they do um, participate with you, 
are they doing it because of, out of the goodness of their heart, or are they, mm-hmm. are they, are they looking at uh, are they looking at some sort of result or some sort of discovery that mm-hmm. they can kind of either contribute more or kind of you know, put it in their own uh, yeah. buildings? What, so, so what Bill and I did was we put together a research <clears throat> need statement. It was really really important for us to receive funding from the greater community, a partnership also with the greater community, uh, the AEC community, to be able to develop a comprehensive guide that would be available for free. <laughs> and and that's that's actually one of the, the fundamental elements in founding this 501c3 organization um, is to be able to put forth practice guides uh, that would be available as a free resource to the community. And we are partnering with organizations like AIA, San Francisco, USGBC, Northern California, and to deploying some of these insights that we're finding in these chapters as part of their continuing education continuing education for their membership. Yeah, the more we, we, we talk about this, the more I'm starting to see that Urban Fabric truly is. You know, not a lot of companies live up to their names or they don't really make their... It really is. It's a fabric connecting and all of that. It, connecting policy and practice with design is our tagline. Yeah. yeah. On on that subject of design, you're, you, 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 we talked about moving away from design build. What what prompted that or what, what, uh, what advantages do you see in that? Yeah, so... Um, when we look at the traditional way of doing business, it's really about how cheap can we do it? How fast can we do it? What are the the low-cost supplies that we need in order to, to build a building? And, you know, that's really, really effective when it comes to, you know, uh, a budget, you know. But what we're talking about is actually shifting the paradigm just a little bit to an integrated project delivery process. In fact, one of my good buddies, Osha Wilson, wrote a book on it. She's with the with the Google team. And integrated design is really about getting the entire project team together as the building or structure is being designed and really talk about the goals in it and what we can do better for glazing, for glass, positioning, energy modeling, um, water reuse, all of the things that would actually make a better building, happier tenants, and also cause uh, or have a longevity to the building in the future. Oh, excellent. You're listening to The Modern Architect, 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Loop is a radio show featuring electronic music, ranging from house to down-tempo and techno, and everything that's good in the underground. Each week, the show features releases, exclusive mixes, top picks, interviews, and live guest DJs from around the world. That's The Loop from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. on Monday mornings. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Kyle Pickett, Managing Director of Urban Fabric, now the William J. Worthen Foundation. For more information, please visit www.urbanfabric.com. That's www.urbanfabric.com. Kyle, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, William J. Um, Worthen Foundation. What, uh, explain to me a little bit how you've kind of transitioned into yeah. that. So just to... Just to clarify, Urban Fabric Inc. is remaining Urban Fabric Inc. It is the the bread and butter of what we do. Um, but Bill and I also founded 
the nonprofit foundation from which this water reuse practice guide is coming from. And um, when he passed, it was really, really important to me, not only as his surviving spouse, but also his business partner to the organization into a way to really preserve his legacy of collaborative leadership around sustainability and to advance climate positive development and also engage in social justice. It's really, really important for us to take a look at the broader context. Not everyone's cut out to be an architect or an engineer, but there are those um, vocations that come to bear in supporting the sustainability measures that we're trying to do. So like water reuse technicians can be trained to maintain these on-site water reuse um, Mm, systems that we were just talking about about in the practice guide. And so in order to do that, it was important for me to preserve his legacy. And so we have repositioned the Urban Fabric Collaborative now as the William J. Worthen Foundation to kind of advance those goals. Yeah. How's the response been so far? It's been amazing and astonishing. So um, oh, Amazing and yeah. astonishing. Yeah, those uh, nice people love Bill. Yeah. It, it's really that simple. People loved Bill. And um, people that I didn't even know started coming out of the woodwork and was looking for ways to help grow the foundation. And so we've had a couple of uh, stakeholder engagement conversations. We're really, really excited about what the future holds. I am planning a Black Tie Gala fundraiser for the organization actually nice. next spring. It's really, really exciting what uh, the future holds for for this as a foundation as part of that preserving that legacy. Yeah. Was this something you may have talked about prior to? No. Really? No. <laughs> no. So Bill had triple bypass surgery actually last January, January of 2016. So it was a preventative procedure that he underwent. And uh, so we were coming out of that. And so this last January, almost a almost directly a year later after the surgery was when he had that catastrophic heart attack in Las Vegas. He was there to speak at the ASHRAE um, Winter Conference. But that's, yeah, that's when that happened. But we never we never talked about that. This is this is my way of also giving back and being able yeah. to help, you know, preserve his legacy going forward. I think forward. it's terrific. It's terrific. Thank and, you. And, you t- and you saying that people are coming out of the, you know, out of the you woodwork. didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you didn't yeah. even know. It's really humbling. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. So it's exciting but humbling at the same time. Yeah, right? definitely both. Yeah. 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 And it's really, it's really encouraging to me because that also gives me strength and uh, to really engage with people and um, empowering people that want to help, you know, to to push things forward. Uh, a good friend uh, is contributing money as, uh, to uh, as a, uh, a mentorship program in Bill's name. And so the oh, board right. is providing her the runway and the power to be able to take that to the next level because it's clearly something that she cares about. It's really important for us. Yeah. No, well, you, you, it's obviously still headquartered in San Francisco. Correct. And um, um, is it, would it be do you have other other folks that are as a, a part of it, like the water reuse program that will be? Is it is it? Uh, it's still together. It's separate. It's not separate. Then it's it's a connected operation. But, so but, we. We really think of the William J. Worthen Foundation yeah. as a sister organization to Urban Fabric. Um, we're blessed right now to be working on so many cutting-edge projects um, and being able to flip a lot of those insights into free professional education through the foundation. And, uh, you know, I we have a couple other practice guides actually teed up to, to go after funding. One's about zero waste. and um, Zero waste? Zero waste. No. That is the goal. That is the goal. 
zero. You guys are killing me. I mean, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. We're really, really excited. So that that concept is really in in its infancy, and so we're developing the research need statement for that, and hopefully we'll be getting back on board uh, once this is published in the next the water use practice guide is published in the next month or so. Oh my gosh! Have you yeah. reached out to other countries or other countries? Obviously, they must have seen what you're doing. Well, one of the technology vendors that we that we routinely work with in our projects um, is based out of Australia, and so they provide a lot of the technical content for this guide um, around um, what kind of technology is appropriate for a project. Because you know every project is different. So you know the size of the building, what is the right technology to actually move forward? Five twenty five Golden Gate, which is San Francisco. Public Utilities Commission's headquarters. They incorporated a tidal flow wetland. That's actually one of the earlier projects that Bill had worked on when he was with Simon & Associates. Really? Tidal flow wetland, it's an accelerated process that uses natural biology and sand and plants and others that actually cleans the water enough to be able to uh, then pump it back into the building for uh, for toilet flushing and other. It's, uh, they do tours. Wow. Tom, you you got to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Do they have a website that you're aware of? Or that, that, yeah, that so you if, you, if you go to the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission website, I know they don't make it a secret, but they do have it, um, you know, uh, have tours available. Nice. Uh, the founding of good design. Um, yeah. Talk about a little, just briefly on that, or as long as you want, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, um, good design is an entity that Bill and I formed that is essentially an AEC overlay of services to existing co-working. This kind of goes back to Bill's time at AI National. Can um, small firm architects, engineers, contractors, and others that service that industry uh, come together and actually share resources and not have such a high rent if they were siloed in their own little locations? So that would, that's what we've done is we created, uh, we partnered with a organization, a co-working company called Covo. We are in downtown San Francisco. And so we have a materials library and a plotter room available for for use, and we have a number of small firm architects and engineers actually in the space. Excellent, and where where uh, this obviously the show is dedicated to Bill. Where where do we go from here? As mm. you brought this up with, without. Um our, our friend, and we love this word, luminary. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really, really important to recognize that we have very, very talented and very passionate people that are coming up through, you know, the process. You know, they graduate from school, uh, they get involved, um, and I think the mentor, the mentoring program uh, or mentorship is really, really important that we spark an interest within people to go beyond just the design-build process, to be able to incorporate sustainability, you know, um, have those conversations, be able to pivot and look at something from a bigger um, concept. One one of our favorite sayings was, um, if you can't solve the problem, blow it up. So we make it bigger, you know, and then look at it from those different angles. And we can often find a resolution not only within ourselves, but then also with our project teams and really uh, the mentorship you know, of those bright lights that are coming up uh, to become luminaries themselves. Awesome. Kyle, it's been great having you here today. It's been great being here. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. We're honored. We're certain you will, you'll carry the torch for Bill and uh, his and your mission for Urban Fabric and the William J. Worthen Foundation. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest has been Kyle Pickett. Our radio show and podcast is dedicated to the late, great Bill Worthen, architect and founder of Urban Fabric. 
Kyle Pickett, Bill's husband and managing principal, Urban Fabric, now the William J. Worthen Foundation, is a sustainable and collaborative design consulting and communications company with a mission to make sustainability accessible and engaging to all. For more information, visit urbanfabric.com. That's www.urbanfabric.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Juggy. Assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Please tune in again next week for another episode of The Modern Architect. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with over 350 building product manufacturers, large and small. Modeler.com works with architects from 80% of the top 100 architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for their building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of their production and the broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.